Good morning, Tulagur Community Church. It's a pleasure to be with you today. The journey through time and space was quite exhausting for me because I'm not as young as I used to be. Your pastor Adam tells me that you've been talking about me all summer. Um, this is a little bit embarrassing for me. Hopefully you've been able to learn a little bit about my story. You know, as I lived my life, I never imagined that people would be talking about me for years and years and generations and generations to come. When I think about my life, I know that it really is a story about who God is and what he has done. So hopefully that is what you've been able to glean and learn more and more about. Usually when I'm asked to come and speak, they ask me to talk about my slaying of Goliath. They ask me to talk about my work in battle, and man, I'm very good in battle. They ask me to talk about when I was anointed king or crowned king in Jerusalem or, or when I brought the Ark of, of the Covenant to Jerusalem. These are the things usually people want me to talk about, but I was told that there's a preaching schedule. And so I've been asked to talk about a part of my story that was actually very difficult for me. Not only was it a difficult part of my story, but it was a part of my story that doesn't shed the best light on me. It kind of highlights the lower parts of my journey. You know, when God called me a man after his own heart, I thought, wow, that's quite the title. And then Samuel came. Man, I miss Samuel. And, and he anointed me king. Me, a, a young boy living in a small town, Bethlehem, the youngest of eight brothers. Me, a king? I made an assumption that being anointed by God, I made an assumption that being a man after God's own heart meant that my life was going to not just be good, but it was going to be great. I was going to prosper. Things were going to be amazing. But as you've been learning over this summer... The highlights of my life, the highlights of my story are not the whole story. And I came to realize that God's, being God's chosen didn't mean that I would be spared from suffering or that life would be easy. And this is perhaps a lesson that we all have to learn, isn't it? We see the greatness and the goodness of God and we expect that those who follow him should have an amazing and prosperous life. But then problems around the world affect those who follow God as much as those who do not follow God. Sickness and death seems to plague those who follow God as much as those who do not follow God. Difficulty in relationships and heartaches and trials seem to follow those who follow God as much as those who do not follow God. We end up wondering where is he? That was a question that I had to ask many times in my life. Well, I've been asked to share with you this heartache part of my story, and I hope that's okay. I'm a king, so it'd be quite rude of you not to listen to me. This story is told about me from chapters 13 to 18 in the book called Second Samuel, and don't worry, I'll spare you some of the details. But again, this is a part of my story I wish was never written down. Because it does not make me look very good. 
You see, in my prosperity as king, I didn't seek him the way that I should have been seeking him. In my prosperity as king, I wasn't being obedient or doing the things that I really should have been doing before him. In some ways, I wonder if I had forgotten him. But as I tell you my story, I want to invite you into some of what I came to realize. Part of my story does not begin so much with me as it does with my son, Amon. And when I think about Amon, I wonder if all that was about to follow, all the pain, all the suffering, would it have been avoided had I just been a better father? Would it have been avoided if I would have just been more attentive, if I would have seen what was going on in his life? Because you see, Amon allowed sin to so capture his heart that he committed an atrocity against his sister Tamar. He did something towards her that caused her irreversible harm. And as a father in this moment, I I should have run to help Tamar. I should have run to intervene in some way. I should have done something about Amon. But you know what? I did absolutely nothing. It was my son Absalom who came to comfort Tamar. Two years passed. Two years of anger and resentment on Absalom's part. Two years of seeing Amon walking around Jerusalem going unpunished. And his anger and his frustration welled up and boiled over. Absalom devised a plan to have all of my sons go to a sheep shearing. I thought this was kind of strange, but I was like, sure, go for it. And while they're all out at this event, by Absalom's order, Amon was murdered. The word that came to me at first was that all of my sons had been killed. You imagine? All of my sons killed. But this wasn't the case. Eventually, we saw my sons returning from outside of Jerusalem. They were approaching the gates. All but two. Amon, who of course was dead. And Absalom, who had fled to a foreign kingdom to seek refuge. He remained there for three years. You know, of all the difficult seasons that I had approached in my life, of all the difficult seasons I dreamt of maybe happening to me, I never thought that they would hit so close to home. Who knew that my greatest vulnerability came from my own family? Absalom's self-imposed exile, it grieved me. It grieved me. But I could not reconcile the justice that was required upon Absalom with my love for him as his father. I wanted to go to him. I wanted to restore him, but I couldn't. I was a king. It would make me look weak. I can't allow the murder of one of my sons to go unpunished. So again, I did nothing. It was Joab. Joab, my right-hand man, my general, he got so sick of my whining and my bitterness and my frustration. It was all over my face. I was clearly in a bad mood because things were not right at home. Much like the prophet Nathan who used a crafted story to bring me to my senses about Bathsheba. My men had a woman come and tell me a crafted story to bring me to my senses about Absalom. 
And it worked. I allowed Joab to go and get Absalom to bring him home to Jerusalem. But I was not able to have Absalom come home to me. Absalom was ordered to live in Jerusalem, but he was not to come into my presence. He was not to come into my courts. He was not to come anywhere near my power or my influence. But I did not realize at the time that I had created an arrangement that would be unsustainable for both Absalom and myself. Two more years passed. Two years of unforgiveness, of bitterness, of resentment. And as I look back now, I see how powerful and potent sin actually is. You see, sin produces sin. It feeds upon itself. The defiling of my daughter Tamar fed to the murder of Amon, which fed into my own hard-heartedness and bitterness and resentment. Absalom responded to Amon's sin by sinning. He murdered him. I responded to Absalom's sin by sinning, and I shunned Absalom. Friends, we do well to break the cycle of sin as quickly and decidedly as we can. Two more years of wounds festering, Absalom again kind of explodes. He lights some fields on fire and forces an audience with me. And so I, I comply. I say, sure, let's meet. And he comes to me. And in that moment, I publicly blessed my son with a kiss. This was my, an act of demonstrating my love and my blessing of him. In this moment, I knew that there remained a lot of unresolved tension. There remained a lot of bitterness and unforgiveness. Yet after five years, I was delighted to truly have my son back. So I thought. I believed that at this point, things would continue to move towards resolve. That all would be well. I thought the suffering and the turmoil that I had experienced had come to an end, but this was not the case. Absalom actually used his kingly blessing as a basis to be more public and prominent. He took his place at the city gates. And I've noticed here that you guys don't have city gates in the same way that we did back then. The gates of the city back then was a location where business and other legal matters would take place. So Absalom gained popularity as he involved himself in resolving the disputes of the people. And I didn't realize it at the time, but as he did that, he was bad-mouthing me. You know, he was a beautiful man, my son. From the sole of the foot, crown of his head, he was very attractive. He was the type of man that a nation would want as a leader. He looked like a leader. King Saul was a lot like that too. With Absalom's beauty and cunning, over time he stole the hearts of the people. Then one day he came to me and asked if he could go and worship in Hebron. You know, this felt like a proud parenting moment, right? My son coming to me requesting permission to go and worship Yahweh? Of course, Absalom. Go worship, go in peace, be blessed. But I was so blind. I was so foolish. Absalom actually used the worship of Yahweh as a cover-up. He didn't intend to worship Yahweh at all. 
He had conspired a plan that when he got to Hebron, he would be crowned king over Israel. A trumpet would sound throughout all of the land. And it would be declared across Israel that that Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. And this is exactly what took place. I didn't hear the trumpets myself or the declarations. In, In fact, it was quite an ordinary day for me. I was in the palace in the morning playing the lyre, working on some new music. In the afternoon, I went and attended to some of the plans for the temple. And while I was looking at those plans... News came to me that the heart of Israel had turned to Absalom and the people have declared him king in Hebron. This word made my world fall apart. I was anointed king over Israel. I was God's chosen one. I was the leader of the people, not Absalom. And Hebron? Hebron is where I was crowned king over Judah. Quickly, I realized all that this conspiracy entailed. My mind raced and then slipped back into patterns that I had formed when I was on the run from King Saul. I realized quickly that I was now a threat to Absalom. And he was surely a threat to me. And so I thought of my household and my companions, those loyal to me. We were no longer safe in Jerusalem. We had no idea what Absalom was planning. So we gathered them all together and we made necessary preparations and we began to depart Jerusalem. I had to return where I knew I'd be safe. I had to return to where I had been so many times when I was in danger, when my life was at risk. I returned to the wilderness. As my anguish in the moment began to increase, so did my attentiveness to God. You know, isn't it amazing how suffering, pain, and heartache turn our attention back to God? I was like so many Israelites before me who under distress had been shaken awake again to God. And it was in this waking up that I think I began to realize some things. The first realization happened as we were about to leave the gates of the city. And I saw in the distance some men coming. They were the high priests. And they weren't alone. And in fact, they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And it dawned on me, I'm like, this is it. The Ark of the Covenant, if Israel can see me with the Ark of the Covenant, they'll remember who their king is. They'll remember who is in charge. I had not called for them. I didn't ask them to come to me, but I was so blessed by their loyalty. Seeing the Ark gave me confidence. God could make me triumph and prosper. Surely Israel will return to me. But in that moment, I realized something. Had I made my rule and reign in Israel all about me? As I lived in the prosperity offered to me by God, had I so settled into a place of power that I'd forgotten the source of that power? This was my first realization in the midst of my suffering. My life is not meant to be about my power or my influence. 
It's meant to be about God's power, God's influence. My life is not meant to be about David's kingdom. It's, about, it's meant to be about God's kingdom. You know, my mind went back to when I was running from Saul, living in the wilderness. I had nothing but God available to me. I had no power. I had no influence. His presence and provision was tangible and real to me. Because I had no other hope. In those days, I had no castle. I had no kingdom. I had no subjects. I had no resources. I just had caves as a home and a band of outcasts as loyal friends. The Lord was truly my strength and the one who preserved my life. I remember that my life was a testimony to what God had done, not what David had done. So as I stared at that Ark of the Covenant, I remember that Jerusalem was not actually my city. I remember that Israel was not actually my nation. It was God. So I told the high priest to turn around and take the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And I chose to believe that as God's power had been on display in the past in my life, that his power will again be on display in my life, whether I am king or not. This was an experience of humility. The anguish of the situation did a work in my heart where I was able to see that I had become so proud. I had been doing life without God. Friends, the temptation in trying circumstances is to grab hold of everything that we can, isn't it? Perhaps you can relate. But instead of reaching for power and control, we do well to remain humble. This was something that I had lost in the years leading up to these events, and I was thankful to regain my humility. So me and my companions, we continued our journey now up the Mount of Olives. I can so vividly remember the sound of weeping as we went. We were scared. We were confused. Why? Why did Absalom do this? I was angry. I was angry at Absalom. I was angry at myself. But as we journeyed, I was blessed because provisions came from unexpected places. Updates came by the way of messengers. But one of these messengers delivered to me yet another significant blow. I had a trusted advisor. His name was Ahithophel. He was brilliant and wise. You know, Ahithophel was someone that after he gave counsel, we would say that hearing the voice of Ahithophel was like hearing the voice of God. He was a brilliant man. He was someone that you wanted as a friend. But the messenger came and told me that Ahithophel was actually in league with Absalom. My advisor, my trusted advisor was in league with Absalom. I wondered how long the conspiracy had been going on. I, I, I wondered how long Ahithophel had been meeting with Absalom, giving him advice. I wondered if what I was experiencing now was all by the hand of Ahithophel. I just imagined that after Ahithophel and I would meet, that he would go off and meet again with Absalom. Hiding in the shadows. 
Man, the pain of this betrayal returned me to my knees. And this is my second realization. As seeing the Ark of the Covenant made me realize my pride in my own heart. Now hearing of Ahithophel's betrayal made me realize that I had not been praying as I used to. I came to realize that in recent years as king, I had allowed myself almost to stop praying. You know, inquiring of the Lord used to be like a reflex for me. But kings, they have advisors. All the kings around the land, they all have advisors. My advisor's name was Ahithophel. But I began to realize that I had so come to trust in the counsel and the advice of Ahithophel that I had neglected seeking the counsel and the advice of God. So I fell to my knees. I prayed as I hadn't prayed in a long time. Friends, we can find counsel and advice in so many different places. I hear the most famous and well-known advisor in your day is someone named Google. And I thought Ahithophel was a strange name. You know, I had men lined up to be my advisor. Everyone wanted to tell me how to run my kingdom, how to do life the, the way that I should be doing it. I allowed that to pull me away from God, and now I was paying the price. The counsel of people, even the best and well-intentioned ones, must not cause us to, from seeking counsel from God or His Word. And it took the anguish of betrayal for me to realize that. So how are your prayers to God? Are they being replaced by different advisors? Please learn from me that you would much rather be found on your knees when disaster strikes than be thrown to your knees by it. In my case, suffering did just that. So I prayed. My first prayer wasn't a, a very glamorous prayer. It was kind of a selfish prayer, a bitter prayer, an angry prayer. But it was honest. I prayed that God would destroy the counsel of Ahithophel. I prayed that God would confuse Absalom. I prayed that God would not allow Ahithophel to prosper in this time. And you know what? God answered my prayers. Another friend came to find me and my companions. His name was Hushai the Archite. He came seeking to join our journey, but I saw in Hushai an opportunity. Because as much as Hithophel was incredibly wise, Hushai was also quite wise. And so I asked Hushai if he would go and be a bit of a double agent. I sent Hushai to Jerusalem. And I asked him that he would find favor with Absalom. And that if given the opportunity, that he would undermine the counsel of Ahithophel. You see, Absalom hadn't actually planned all that much. And so he was seeking the counsel of Ahithophel. So Hushai went. He found Absalom. He gained his trust with his own cunning. It's quite impressive. You should read about it. Ahithophel's advice came to Absalom 
And Ahithophel was really smart. He told Absalom that I was weak, which I was. He told Absalom that I was tired, which I was. He told him that I would be easily defeated and captured. And do you know what? This was all true. Ahithophel's counsel was very wise. In fact, something that made it even wiser was the fact that he told Absalom that he shouldn't go into battle. That he should keep himself safe in Jerusalem. Again, all good advice. But Hushai had completed the first part of his task. And after Ahithophel gave his advice, Hushai was asked, well, Hushai, what's your opinion on the matter? (laughs) And then he's like, Ahithophel's counsel is not wise. It's bad. It's wrong. You shouldn't listen to it. And he went on to portray me as an angry bear. He's like, man, King David, he's upset. More than that, King David's in the wilderness. King David is an expert at fighting in the wilderness. If you only send a few men after him, they'll just get crushed. The other wise thing he did is he told Absalom that he should lead the charge. Gather men from across Israel and go after David. This played on Absalom's own pride. And Absalom saw in Hushai's counsel wise advice. So they began to draw up their battle plans. This plan was shared with the priests who had their sons bring the message to me. They almost got caught on the way, but again, the grace of God prevailed and they made it through. They brought us the war plans of Absalom. And me and my men began to plan our own attack. I wanted to go out with my men. I wanted to go and find my son, Absalom, but they refused my request. They told me that I was too valuable and that I needed to stay in the stronghold. I remember meeting with my three generals and giving up to them the battle plan, giving the battle plan ultimately up to the Lord. The weight of this moment struck me. As we devised our plans, I realized that I was sending hundreds of men out to kill my son. I was drawing up plans and being as strategic as I could in an attempt to kill my own son. You know, on the walk from Jerusalem to the Jordan, through the wilderness, I had a lot of time to think. I thought about my own failings as a father. I thought about all the ways that I wasn't there for Absalom. I thought about all the ways I didn't raise him up the way that I should have. And the weight of it all struck me. I turned to my commanders and I said, deal gently with the man Absalom. Don't kill him. This was the third thing that I realized in the midst of my suffering. I had lost my understanding of compassion. I had allowed myself to be so bitter and hard-hearted. And when I think about my life, it's just covered in compassion. God, my Father, over and over again caring for me in times of trouble, coming to me in my weakness and distress, comforting my soul. 
The Lord truly was my shepherd. I truly did not have to want. And his presence in my life was a show of compassion. And compassion was something that for some reason I felt I had the right to withhold from others. Something that I thought I had the right to withhold from my son. Difficult seasons, especially when they're caused by another, force us to make a choice. To either entrench ourselves in resentment and bitterness or to extend to others compassion. To extend to others the same help or mercy that we so long for in our times of suffering. I came to see Absalom not as my enemy, but as my misguided son. I desired to see him again, to extend to him the same compassion that God had extended to me so many times before. Well, the battle ensued. The men of Israel were actually no match for my men, especially in the wilderness. I waited for word on the battle, sitting in the stronghold. And after a while, I saw a messenger running towards the gates. He came clearer and clearer into view, and I I waited in anticipation for what he was going to say. And he arrived at the gate, and he said, All is well. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against the Lord, my King. This was great news. The battle had been won, but I asked the messenger, what of Absalom? He told me he didn't know. Later I learned that he did know, but didn't have the heart to tell me. Another messenger was coming and arrived at the gate. He brought the same good news, but I too asked him, what of Absalom? His response was made the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. At these words, I knew that Absalom was dead. The conspiracy was defeated. I could go home to Jerusalem. Later I was told that my discovered Absalom hanging from a tree by his hair. Absalom, my son, my son. If only I would have extended him compassion sooner. This, my friends is a true story from the life of God's chosen king. I believed that being God's king would have kept me from hardship or from suffering. But my own sin, the sin of others, and just the circumstances of life took me, as you've been hearing, to some remarkably difficult situations. You yourselves may find yourselves in the midst of difficulty. You may be fearful of what is next. You may be feeling the weight of some illness or trial or some estranged relationship. You may be wondering, where is God? 
But friend, do not allow yourself to miss seeing the constant hand of God working in the midst of it all and ultimately in your own life. Do not miss the gentle whispers of God bringing to you comfort and hope. In my case, things did not fully work out the way that I would have hoped. I still grieve for my son Absalom. Yet I know in the midst of all of this pain was the unexpected fruit of recovered humility, prayerfulness, and compassion. You know, I've been able to read portions of your Bible since being here. And as I reflect on the more difficult seasons of my life, I resonate deeply with one of your authors in the New Testament, Paul. You know, Paul had to endure lots of suffering himself. And at one time, he even begged that God would take his suffering and his pain away. But the Lord responded to him with these words, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. As I went through the painful betrayal of my son, having to flee my capital city, enduring ridicule from my enemies, and watching the betrayal of my people come over and over and over again, it would be easy to think that the grace of God was not there. But friends, it was. It was. God was evidently with me. The Gittites gave me their loyalty, which I did not deserve. The priests risked themselves in Jerusalem. Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met us along the way and brought provisions. The Lord defeated the council of Ahithophel. And prior to drawing up our battle plans, Shobi, the Ammonite, provided for my men places to sleep and food for their bellies. Friends, God's compassion, his grace, his mercy was with me through all of my suffering. Our life with God does not guarantee that we will be free from suffering or heartache or painful circumstances. Please learn that from my story. What life with God does guarantee is that He is with us through it all. And oftentimes He will use these circumstances to do a deep work in our hearts. This has been my experience. If you've been paying close attention to my story... You probably recognize how many of these lessons I've had to learn over and over and over again. But friends, let me assure you that I've realized that walking with God is just that. It's a walk. It's a journey. There is no arrival. I hope these chapters of my story and experience have been meaningful for you to hear. I apologize that I couldn't share something more lighthearted with you. And please know that in my case, humility, prayerfulness, and compassion were areas I experienced growth. The fruits of difficult experience will be unique for each of you. It is important in our seasons of difficulty to listen, to hear what God may be saying, what he may be up to, both in your heart and in the world around you. I want to invite your musicians to come back up here. And as they come, let me pray for us all. Father God, I thank you for story. I thank you that 
my life has been able to bless so many generations after me as they immerse themselves in my story. And Lord, thank you for seasons of my life that I thought were unredeemable, seem to be ones that you've reached into and have redeemed. Thank you for the lessons that you've taught me along the way. And Father, I pray for this group of people, for this church, for those enduring suffering or those who know of others enduring suffering and heartache. God, in the midst of it, may they remain humble, prayerful, and compassionate. Give them ears to hear what you may be doing in their hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would bless them. Bless them. Amen.